Welcome to season two of Access and Opportunity, a podcast from Morgan Stanley connecting capital and communities. In season one, we heard from outstanding change agents about opening doors for multicultural and women entrepreneurs. From Richard Lou Dennis, the founder and CEO of Sundial Brands, to Dr. Frida Kapoor-Klein, a partner at Kapoor Capital, all of our guests have shared their playbooks for investing, developing, and even transforming communities. Now, we've learned a lot from their playbook points, and if there's one thing we know, is that there is extraordinary opportunity in investing in multicultural and women-owned businesses. This season, we are shifting the spotlight to entrepreneurs themselves, to those that are in the trenches building their businesses, finding capital, and disrupting markets. We will trace their journeys, hear their advice, and explore how each of their unique experiences have led them down the road to success. Come on and join me for the ride. In our first episode of season two, we are re-envisioning urban real estate. We will walk you through one man's journey from corporate America to entrepreneur and private real estate investor. This week's guest has over 25 years of experience and more than $14 billion of transactions under his belt. Neville Rohn is the co-founder and managing partner of Art Capital Partners, and they are a major player in the urban real estate investment market. Both Neville and his partner, Quincy Allen, are dedicated to enhancing economic value and employment opportunities in diverse neighborhoods. And one example is his effort to reinvigorate the historic Chapman Plaza in Koreatown, Los Angeles. And I'm sure he'll have plenty more examples to share. Neville, thank you for being here with me today. Let's get started. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit about how you got to ARC Capital. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I met you two decades ago easily as a young associate at Morgan Stanley, where you rose through the ranks to become a vice president in our real estate investing arm. So will you take our listeners back to that journey? What I really want them to hear is the aha moment when you said, mm, I think I can do this on my own. I actually am Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial material. So you're talking to the son of two Jamaican immigrants from my earliest days here in the country, in the United States. I've always had that entrepreneurial bug, right? Always had it. But you know what? Uh, When you come here and your parents say you're going to be a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do, right? So I went to school in engineering at, at Cornell for civil engineering. So that's one building block, right? One piece of the puzzle for what's ah, good real estate. Okay. Right? Went from there to work with a developer in New York City. And uh, while at the developer, uh, saw that, you know, real estate is more than just the, what we call the bricks and sticks. It's the capital structure. It's the being able to navigate the markets the right way. It's the, you know, frankly, the type of capital that you're investing as well as the asset that you're investing in. And so in seeing that, went to business school. And while at business school at Columbia, that's when I, you know, had the the great fortune of getting to know uh, Morgan Stanley and you and your team, uh, and and that really sort of took me on my path to go from just the asset engineering, you know, and and the project management to finance, mm-hmm. and then well, you know, what's next? Well, how do you invest? How mm-hmm. do you allocate risk? How do you mitigate the concerns in any opportunity? 
And so um, while at, uh, at Morgan Stanley, what became clear to me was that, you know, if I could be at a platform like a canyon where, you know what, um, job one is to find where opportunities are mispriced. Uh, well, at that time, this is going back almost 20 years, okay. there was a significant evacuation of capital from the downtowns, the, the CBD, central business districts, mm-hmm. uh, the urban quarters. That's fair, because that was late 90s. Mm-hmm. So it was a time where uh, money was plentiful because it was right at the beginning of the dot-com boom. Yep. So lots of millionaires being made. And the game was, how big can you make the house? Mm-hmm. And exactly. Which means you had to move out of the city. Okay, I'm with you so far. Right. Well, we said, go back and look in the cities. Right. Go back and look at the, uh, the vibrancy uh, the density, more importantly, uh, the activity, the employers. Um, if you look at uh, where the action is with respect to uh, the jobs, frankly, and, and where employers can congregate and be able to draw from education, infrastructure, and things that which, you know, it's hard to build mm-hmm. new and de novo, um, why not look there? But it wasn't so, obvious that the people were there, though, at the time, because as you said, everybody was moving out. Mm-hmm. So are you suggesting that there was still a lot of people who were in, but yes. who were now now under-resourced because all the resources had moved out? Mm-hmm. So the people hadn't moved, but the resources had moved, and mm-hmm. you were still looking at the fact that there were a lot of people still in the city mm-hmm. that needed the resources. Is that where you're going? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So these cities... Uh, and these communities were underserved by you know, lack of capital mm-hmm. in these areas. Mm-hmm. Simple, simple fact. Uh, and in reality, uh, at the time, now things have changed and evolved quite a bit, but at the time, uh, you could invest uh, with, in a way, either lower cost, uh, higher yield, um, less you know, um, tight pricing mm-hmm. in these areas because capital was not competing with you to be in these same areas. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. was the arbitrage. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, arbitrage. A, it's the thing that I say all the time. Whenever there is a market inefficiency, mm-hmm. and clearly there was a market inefficiency because all the capital was going out of the central business district, mm-hmm. there was the opportunity because... It was basically open playing field there. Exactly. And you still had a population of people. To your point, if they spent $10 a day, a million people, that's $10 million of capital coming in per day, every day. And these were largely communities of color that's right. because the flight went with the money and the mm-hmm. money wasn't disproportionately with people of color. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm with you. I'm following. That's right. Okay. That's, right. that's exactly right. Uh, we lived through, I want to say we thrived, we lived through the greatest downturn in the history of our lifetimes for a lot of us, right, mm-hmm. in the last 50 years, really, mm-hmm. for all of us. Meaning the financial services crisis, yes. which started in the, the, the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter of 08. This yes. is the time. Okay. Yes, right. So we've gone through that process. Mm-hmm. Right? We've, we've sort of seen the worst of the, of the business. Um, and so a couple of years after that, we said, well, let's take a, take a step back. Let's look at the 50 investments we made over our careers and really were honest about what worked and didn't work through good times and capital A, bad times and bad times, mm-hmm. right? And, and we saw that a few things became incredibly clear, and that was the genesis of why we decided we wanted to start ARC Capital Partners, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so the first thing that we saw was that um, ultimately uh, size is the enemy of performance. Hmm. The bigger the deal... Right. Yes. Either you're taking on more risk or getting lower return relative to the smaller deals, mm-hmm. where the smaller deals perform better. Again, good times and bad times. Okay. The second trend that we saw was ultimately, to the extent the asset was in an urban community, 
it also did better in the bad times as well as the good times. Mm-hmm. Right, either recovered faster or sustained itself through the downturn. The second, that it became affordable relative to other alternatives in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. That's another thing. Urban, why urban? Okay, well, we'll talk about that. Yes. Right. Uh, and then the other thing is um, hard to make money for doing no work. You got to work hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You got to be relentless. Yes. Right. You need to create value. You need to be creative. You mm-hmm. need to take things that turn upside down. You need to break rules. You need to do things that make it so that what used to be viewed as a lump of coal by either a patron or capital is viewed more like a diamond. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what's the transformation happening? And so uh, we quickly figured out that, you know, well, um, at this stage of our careers, why not invest in ourselves to pursue a strategy where we said, you know what? We're going to go after urban infield communities across the board, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but let's mitigate the, you know, the thesis, right? Let's, let's, let's look at middle market assets and that those middle market assets are between, on the low end, $10 million up to $70 million in size. Mm-hmm. Now, let's think about, well, um, the type of investments we make. Well, these are always going to be repositionings transformational type opportunities where we're taking what used to be under invested, under loved into something that, you know what, now actually has less risk and is an appeal for the community. The reason why urban works is uh, 95 million people that we call millennials. Yes. And uh, the millennial generation is the largest age cohort in the history of the United States. And they're all growing up at the same time. You know, granted, you know, some are younger, some are older, some have kids, some don't. But the bottom line is that 95 million people want walkability. Mm-hmm. They want tolerance. In every way. In every way. Racial, gender, political. Exactly. Mm-hmm, I'm exactly. with you. Okay. Exactly. Every way. In every way. Uh, jobs. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. You know, the, the, the group wants to have and be a part of an exciting, growing industries, which tend to be more knowledge-driven, not as manufacturing-heavy as mm-hmm. it had been in prior years. And... Design, what's mm-hmm. special, what's not a commodity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but then the layer behind this as well is that it has to be affordable in some capacity. There are great uh, opportunities for incredibly high-end luxury uh, alternatives for where you live, work, or play. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the reason why we saw that urban infill worked in the bad times is because when all the owners decided, well, you know what, I'm going to capitulate and meet the market. The second it became affordable, there's a giant, you know, sucking sound from all the suburbs mm-hmm. to the city because now people are saying, wow, I can finally afford to live where I really want to be. Yes. I don't want to be in the suburbs. I want to be in the city. I want to be close to work. I want to have the walkability. I want to have the, you know, diversity of people. I, that's what I really want. Mm-hmm. And I was pushed out before. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, I'm back in. And so... Um, that is the really ultimate genesis with respect to taking a step back. Let's look at the points on the board. We're kind of analytical. I'm a nerd. I'll mm-hmm. admit it. Right? I heard it <laughs> in sharing before, so it still lives in me. And, and, and said, well, you know, follow the people. Uh, and uh, when we saw that opportunity and then thought about, well, that opportunity set is so massive, let's, uh, let's give it a shot. 
Yeah. Well, I think this is an important point. As I like to call them, it's a playbook point, because so often people decide to become entrepreneurs because they don't like the gig that they're engaged in at that point. And they say, oh, well, I can just work for myself. But at, I'm a strong believer that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you actually have to be running to something something Mm -hmm. as opposed to running from something. And it sounds like because you had made it through the financial services crisis, you decided that that was a good moment to stop and look at what you guys had done. And you realized that you had a track record that was comparable to any track record that was out there and decided, well, then we can do this on our own. And oh, by the way, again, we are focusing on a market segment that people still haven't figured out. We are focusing on this demographic And our view is that we map to where they're going to be and where they want to be. Mm -hmm. And um, we always say in our office, you know, we, um, given our backgrounds, uh, we have the heart and the soul and the passion of a developer, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, we have the mind, uh, the paranoia, uh, the discipline of an investor. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And so how Mm -hmm. do you focus on this space but at the same time, mitigate your risk. What's the right price? What's yes. the right, you know, uh, property type? Yes. Uh, you know, all in corridors that are going to be in the next curve, mm-hmm. right, for that demographic. But how do you do that the right way so that you're set up so that you can have a long, sustainable business and partners over time? And, and at the right time. Because mm-hmm. the other thing that I heard you say that I think is an important playbook point is that you learned the discipline of how to look at opportunities from your time at Canyon, where you said, where is something mispriced in the market? So even though you have a strategy, you're looking for where is there an inefficiency exactly. around pricing today? That's right. Now, what can I bring to the table that's going to make this differentiated, i.e., why? me Mm -hmm. as a buyer, which I think is also important as an entrepreneur. I always say the two things entrepreneurs, the two questions entrepreneurs need to be able to answer is why me and why now? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're employing that discipline around your investment strategy, that certainly gives you the script to be able to articulate to those who might invest with you. Mm -hmm. So let's pivot to those who might invest with you. Because obviously one of the toughest things as an entrepreneur of color or as a female entrepreneur is having the access to capital. Real estate needs real capital. We're not talking about a couple hundred thousand dollars to right. invest in something mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, a buying something for, you know, 40 percent of the price with an earnout, Right. You need the cash up right. front because Break you're not even seen as a real player if you don't have the cash. So let's talk about that journey mm-hmm. to access the capital as an entrepreneur in this space. The journey has not ended. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, point well taken. You know, I tell you, um, it has been an incredible journey because uh, when we started, uh, we did not have anything lined up out of the gates at all. I mean, we had a uh, actually we had a sublet with our our, our legal firm um, and uh, a business card, and that's you decided to pivot. Wait, let me get this. You decided to pivot out of a fund that was very well capitalized with no anchor investor. Right. All righty then. That's okay. Right. That's right. Like I said, we're entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, um, there's enough space and we had enough uh, track record relationships where that didn't feel like it was just rolling the dice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, fortunately, and I get to give credit to those who supported us in the very beginning, uh, but there is a very large family office out of Seattle that goes under the moniker of Columbia Pacific Advisors. Mm-hmm. Um, when we left uh, Canyon and had announced... Uh, Frankly, they called us. And uh, we sat down in the course of 30 to 60 days, had a deal, and we were off to the races with respect to uh, not only our firm, but also our first set of investments in the real estate space to Mm -hmm. build our own separate track record 
from what we had done at Canyon and before. So let's talk about some of those early deals, because the Mm -hmm. thing that I think is so great about the way you have built this is that you put points on the board before you actually went after what I would call the big institutional money, which I want to get to next. But can you talk about some of those early deals and how you kind of invited people to touch, taste, and feel Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. you asked them to open up the checkbook? Sure, absolutely. Well, um, so uh, when we focused on our our, uh, millennial strategy, we said, well, where are millennials congregated? Where are they growing the most? Well, it turns out roughly six of the top 10 markets where that happens is either in California or Texas. Two states. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And so uh, within those states, uh, there are, you know, urban cores where you spend your time, you know, as the front, uh, the front of the lines. And, And so we invested in Austin, Texas, Right, top of the list everywhere now. It wasn't yes. that back then? Yeah. <laughs> right, but it is what now. year was this? Uh, it's 2013. So talk to our listeners about value add operators because that again, that's all over the literature when they're talking about your your firm. That that's part of your strategy. So part of it is urban. Part of it is where are the millennials congregating, but you're looking for certain type of operators and you're looking for disruptive technology. So can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what is a value added operator? What we look to do is that we make sure that we take what was, and I just call it crappy real estate, and this, mm-hmm. this reality. A lot of times it's just not invested, uh, it is in bad shape and what have you. And Been neglected. Neglected, yeah. exactly, mm-hmm. right? And they could be in locations that was overlooked during the suburban sprawl. They're often more emerging neighborhoods mm-hmm. where we can come in and improve what's in place in order to provide a product that is upgraded, but still at a significant discount to Class A alternatives. Austin, for example, just to talk about Austin, the job growth and the sort of the uh, installed uh, infrastructure for uh, the Dells of the world and Samsung, what have you, has been very much north of the city. Mm-hmm. However, Austin, live music capital of the world, right, in, or U.S., uh, yes. but the yes. world too, mm-hmm. you know, across the board, that vibrancy happens downtown. When you go further south, there is a neighborhood called South Congress that until probably 15 years ago was a place where it was sort of dangerous to be, you know, walking Mm -hmm. down the street. But there's been a whole set of those who are in the creative class that repositioned uh, Uh hotels and retails and Mm -hmm. shops along that corridor. Mm -hmm. And now south of the the city is the place where younger people want to be. Okay. And those younger people aren't only from Texas, but they're from New York. Mm -hmm. They're from L.A. You know, they're from San Francisco. They're from other places that are more urban, eclectic, or what have you. So mm-hmm. coming to being in that part of South Congress zip code has been the forefront for yes. many people, right? Yes. That's the recent history. Mm-hmm. And so we've been tracking that. And so we said, well, let's buy a 1970s garden-style apartment that is beige, you know, has, um, you know, sort of decrepit, you know, falling apart landscaping mm-hmm. you know, all throughout. Uh, however, you know, we saw, you know what, there's potential here because location's amazing, the foliage is actually very mature. People like to cook and barbecue. Mm-hmm. Why would put in smokers? You know, why not? You know, take that old, uh, you know, underutilized parking lot. Instead of having it be parking, why not make it a dog park? Uh-huh. In terms of the pool, instead of having it be, you know, sort of run fallow, why not put in cabanas and have you know hammocks so people can hang out there? Yes. Uh, instead of having uh-huh. no connectivity at all, walking around the property. Why not make it, you know, Wi-Fi efficient? Uh, instead of having even the trees at night, you know, uh, not be visible, 
why not add up lights and create interesting LED, you know, opportunities throughout the, you know, the property to save energy? Mm-hmm. These are the things that go into being a value-add operator. Okay. Right? It's taking what, again, is underinvested, you know, unimagined, reimagine it, and then do all of that in order to access the biggest chunk of the market. You need to have vision in mm. order to do that. So would you say you and your partner just have great vision? You can see a decrepit property and then put it in context and what it could be? Or do you work with somebody that can help you think about how to reimagine mm-hmm. a space? We very much rely upon um, the relationships we have in each city. Okay. Right. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that we're really good at, we're, I think we're good listeners. That's what we try to do the most of all. Mm-hmm. And um, we listen. You know, we listen to people as they moved to South Congress in this area. Um, we listen to uh, the community as investment and development hopped over I-35, which is a, a border, you know, that's east of the city um, that has historically been more Latino, African-American, you know, in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. When you listen, then, you know, I think with that, you can always come up with ideas by collaborating in order to create the best product. Well, what's coming through is another playbook point, is that uh, you have clearly invested in the spaces, in the cities where you want to play uh, in terms of building Mm -hmm. the relationships because the relationships clearly have gotten you access to people to have the conversation so that you can listen. You can't just drop yourself into a city and and understand what's going on. you got to have the relationships so that you can even begin to have the conversation. So that sounds like it's one of those core tenants Mm -hmm. to successful real estate investing is that you must be in the flow, which means you have to spend some time on the ground building relationships so that people will talk to you. Mm -hmm. So you can find out what's mispriced. You can find Mm -hmm. out who the owner is. You can find out, you know, what might be attractive to them because it's not always price. could be something else that you're planning to do with the property, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So that that brings me to what feels like your crown jewel or your most recent Mm -hmm. crown jewel, Mm -hmm. and that's Chapman Plaza. So talk to us a little bit about that and the historical significance of Chapman Plaza and how in the world did you get in there? Chapman Plaza is a roughly 45,000-square-foot retail center for those of uh, you out there that don't know the the property, but it's located in Koreatown. In um, L.A., by the way. In Los Angeles, yes. yes. Uh, Koreatown, Los Angeles. And um, it was built in 1928, uh, with uh, in, a, in an amazing Spanish um, ornamental design, plaster work was incredible, and it's truly historic. Right, you you cannot uh, it's registered too, by the way. So, yeah, ninety um, years old. Wow. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the thing that we saw that was special about it was that it was built as a market that was supposed to be the first drive-up grocery store, basically, uh, for Los Angeles at the time. <laughs> wow. Right. Think about that. Yeah. Um, and think about. The progression of Los Angeles as well. It was owned by a Korean family that was, I guess it was a first generation-ish. I mean, they didn't, I don't think they're, I think they have kids here and what have you, but they were the first generation that brought this asset in a location, frankly, that was uh, impacted by the the riots uh, at the time, Mm -hmm. right? What we saw, though, when we went there was... When we went to visit the property, the property has been held by this other family by you know, probably almost 20 years now. Uh-huh. And um, we sat and we saw that the Korean barbecue uh, was, you know, had lines out the door where people waited for two hours to get in to eat Korean barbecue. And I'm vegetarian. I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> and you look and it's not only Koreans, you know, it's not only, you know, Chinese American. Uh, it's not only those hipsters. It's it's the truly the cross section of Los Angeles. Yes. In a place where if you look on the inside there's an interesting there's a nice 
pretty dramatic courtyard that's used for parking now that, you know, um, uh, was a place where people congregated. So just seeing that happen, something's going on here. Yeah. You know, we had a different view of, well, what could happen here based on uh, what we saw with respect to the people who were lining up. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two, you look next door, and at the time, frankly, there was a shipping mailbox, et cetera, type mm-hmm. you know, store next to it. Next to that was a vaping store. Now, no offense to those who like mailing, mm-hmm. no offense to those who like to vape, mm-hmm. uh, but we didn't think that was the right mix for the community that we were seeing. Uh, and, and so what we uh, you know, took great pride in was, well, let's go in and re-merchandise. Let's bring in um, you know, really amazing desserts. Right. And we went to a Vietnamese entrepreneur who has something like 95,000 followers on their Instagram because they have incredible boba tea and desserts and macaroons that people love and follow that are Instagrammable. Mm -hmm. Let's support that local, you know, tenant and again, upgrade the experience at this property. I know that the prior owner would not have really went down that road because they were looking just to kind of keep the lights on, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we said, well, why not go in and restore much of the facade and honor the history that the property represents? Why not go and, you know, deal with the parking lot and improve it and get it upgraded so that people can come in and feel comfortable? Why not create a sense of arrival, right? Where before it ran fallow and it just had things that were left over from other parts of the mm-hmm. property. And when we saw that, we saw great value because... We knew not only by the people sitting in line mm-hmm. outside, yes, yes. you know, the, the restaurants, uh, but because um, we're able to map, you know, with some of the things we're looking at in data with social media, that this is a place where there's a real activity and an anchor to the broader community as a whole. So, yes. you know, we couldn't be more excited about it. Wow. Well, congratulations to that, because it sounds like you, you all are going to continue to do some great things with that. Let me just step back here for a second, because I would imagine that you learned a lot about urban investing and how to think about these properties. While you learned the discipline, I would argue, from your time at Canyon, uh, what did you learn working with the uh, the, the Magic Johnson Fund mm-hmm. about urban communities and investing in urban communities? Was there something there? Mm-hmm. My gut tells me there was a takeaway. Oh, yes. sure. Absolutely. Well, I think being able to navigate and see beyond the inherent biases for these communities, mm-hmm. that was number one, right, mm-hmm. from what we're able to benefit from in being partners with Urban Magic Johnson and the team. The other, I would say, uh, would be working and building a team equipped to execute. Yes. And then the third was Operating with humility. How are you trying to leverage Mm -hmm. the community's involvement in what you're creating or to have them play Mm -hmm. in some way? First thing that we always do is that we work with, whether it be the city council people, um, you know, those leaders in the community to understand uh, what would resonate there and what's missing so that we can help serve that need. Right. That's kind of this one one major factor. Uh, The other is that, you know, having grown up um, in many respects, you know, with that experience as being sort of our DNA. Right. We're always collaborative and we're always trying to think about the not just shareholders, but stakeholders. Yes. Right. Thinking about things in that respect. And the other thing we do is that um, we uh, are focused on practicing what we preach. Mm -hmm. Um, We're a diverse set of individuals in our team. We look to hire uh, from, you know, diverse communities as well, you know, and it could be African-American, Asian, you know, and everything in between, 
right, mm-hmm. get based on where we are, right? And doing those things allows us to ultimately move with credibility in every opportunity that we pursue mm-hmm. because we live, you know, what we say. Mm-hmm. Yes, no question about it. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the challenges. You clearly have, you know, 25 years of experience. Quincy has 25 plus years of experience. Uh, it still is a challenge because you said earlier, you know, the the quest continues uh, in terms of getting institutional capital. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges are? And it sounds like the way that you're dealing with them is to continue to put points on the board and sell that and try to sell it effectively. So what are you going to say to the entrepreneurs out there who are trying to raise capital, whether it's a fund or whether it's for their business? Mm -hmm. What are the three things you would tell them they need to do? I would say that um, they certainly need to um, have a very clear understanding of how to deliver what's special about what they're doing. Okay. What's differentiated? Mm Mm-hmm right, about what they are doing relative to others out there in the marketplace. The second, I would say, and this is this goes back to the reality of running a business, how do you capitalize yourself to do so? Mm-hmm. You, you're going to be able to have sustainability, right, through the fundraise process, the deployment process, harvesting process. You know, so how you capitalize in order to do that the right way. And then a third, which goes back to the thing I always say as a challenge, is the right team. Those are the three elements, I would say. So answer the question, what's special about you? And in my parlance is why you, why now? Mm -hmm. Um, How do you capitalize? Make sure that you would say start your business with enough money that will get you through the fundraising process, through the deployment of those funds, and then the realization, because that's what's going to enable you to to bridge, if you will, to the next fundraise. Right. Uh, and then make sure that you pick the right team, mm-hmm. which I think is is very difficult for entrepreneurs to do. And one of the things that I advise entrepreneurs to do is if you have not had a lot of interviewing experience, mm-hmm. then you need to pick a kitchen cabinet that you run all your people by. You say, here's what I need. Now, the four of you, I'm going to send candidates to you after they've kind of passed my sniff test, and you tell me whether or not they meet this report card. Mm-hmm. Because I think that what entrepreneurs don't understand is in the early days, if you make a bad hire, it can be catastrophic to That's your right. business. Right. And your temptation or your predilection when you're really strapped for human resources is to pick somebody who's like you. Yep, and that's mm-hmm. what you don't need. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. So we have a little bit of a tradition, Neville, that we have on uh, access and opportunities where we give our listeners an opportunity to to learn something personal about you. So we do a lightning round. Mm -hmm. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Favorite thing about L.A.? The sun. Favorite book or magazine? Fast Company for the, um, the, the magazine. And then the book would be The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Okay. Jane Jacobs. City or the countryside? City. I knew that one. (laughs) Fastest marathon time? Oh, man. Uh, That's embarrassing. Uh, Around four hours. A little around four hours. Around four hours. Around four hours. We'll take that. that. (laughs) That's better than somebody like me who just watches them. Okay. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast after 30. East Coast before 30. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Your next business venture you're most excited about? Love to figure out how to apply more technology to what we do in real estate. And I think the Opportunity Zone space is very interesting to think about in in the coming, uh, coming years. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Text or talking? Text. Last thing you downloaded? I would say it would be uh, The New Urban Crisis by Richard Florida. Favorite vacation destination? Uh, Jamaica. If you had a talk show, who would you want to be your first guest? Okay, besides you. Okay. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Uh, Charlie Munger. Okay. 
What's one word that you'd like to use to describe your legacy? Relentless. Okay, I love it. Yeah. Well, Neville, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I think you've given lots of playbook points for our listeners. So thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. I'm Carla Harris, and we'll be back soon with another conversation about access and opportunity. 